invite you, if you would, take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke chapter 7. Gospel of Luke chapter 7. This morning, I stand before you for the first time a new man. I am a father. There's a little daunting task with that because the first sermon my daughter is hearing and is present for is from her father. Uh, So that adds a little bit to it. And as I was thinking about that this week, there was just this heightened sense of responsibility, you know. Uh, But I realized that I may be a a different man today, but the message is not different. It's the same. We preach the gospel, we proclaim Christ, and, and we come back to Luke, and we open the scriptures, and we explain them and dig into them and see what God would say to us. And and that never changes. Uh, We are to walk the Christian life together. And the only way to do that is with God's word and with the gospel. And so that's that's what we do. That's what we're going to continue to do in Luke chapter seven here. Now, speaking of the Christian life, I do not have to explain to you that the Christian life is one of ups and downs, isn't it? We have our moments of extreme joy in the Lord, and we also have our moments where we feel completely distant from Him. We know too well those moments where the Lord feels near. We can clearly sense His presence, His guidance, His love, and His grace. And in those moments, we're walking on the mountain peaks of enjoyment and satisfaction. And yet we also know that in the very next moment, the very same day at other times, we feel completely separated, completely fallen, and every ounce of joy that we may experience is fought for with everything within us, and we are actually walking through the valley of despair, aren't we? If you've read the classic book, The Pilgrim's Progress, you know a little bit about that story as the main character Christian is walking from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's his journey in the Christian life and as he's being converted there, he falls into the slough of despond where where despair and, and things of his life overtake him. We know that feeling, right? Because that's the Christian life. We We have this joy and we have this hope and this eagerness and this promise of future glory with Christ and yet at the same time we still live in this world that is corrupted by sin. We still wrestle with our flesh. We still battle against the influence of society and so even in the same day sometimes we can feel and experience the mountain peak of joy and the valley of despair because we are just simply not yet free from the corruption of sin. We know what it's like to walk with God. We can see testimonies of of God's grace and growth in our life that we are being transformed by the Holy Spirit's help into Christ's likeness and we are becoming more and more godly. We're not the same people we were by God's grace even a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago, but yet we still encounter the same struggles, the same battles, We still wrestle with the same things because this is the Christian life. This is the world we live in. The already but not yet sense of walking with God. I say that to say that truly born again Christians who have genuine saving faith in Christ possess the genuine salvation of Christ we know too well can do and will struggle in this life. Until we go to be with the Lord. Until we reach perfection with Christ. We fight sin. We wrestle against the schemes of the devil. And our faith is a constant battle, isn't it? Salvation in Christ isn't just a moment of faith. And then we're left to flounder on our own. It is a fight of faith for the rest of our lives. A fight that's fought with Christ. And in my experience in walking with other believers and walking in this life myself, one of the key points and biggest struggles for all Christians in the fight of faith is this problem of doubt. Doubt is 
pervasive. It's rampant among God's children. The church is full of the schemes of the devil to make God's people doubt God. It is the most used tool of the enemy. The most common struggle of Christians. Doubting God. And I don't just mean doubting God's existence. That's what we typically think of when we think of doubting God. Doubt takes on various forms. It's not just doubting God's existence. It's doubting the truthfulness of God's word. There's nothing that the enemy would love to do more in your life, believer, than to rob your joy in God by causing you to doubt the truthfulness of God's Word. Believers struggle with doubt. That's, that's a fact. And it's not just doubt in the existence of God. And it's not just doubt in the truthfulness of God's Word. It's even doubt in the goodness of God. Maybe you have doubt in the love of God. Maybe you have doubt in the forgiveness of God. I'll I'll just be transparent with you for a moment here. That was my biggest struggle, is my biggest struggle, in wrestling with depression. I can stand and say and tell people, God has enough grace and enough love to forgive you and any sin that you may commit. He can save people to the uttermost parts of the earth, anybody. Nobody's too far gone for God to forgive and save. And yet, too often, I struggle with that applied to me. Doubt that God's grace extends to me, that God's love is for me. Christians doubt those things. We doubt the promises of God. We are tempted to doubt that God can save someone in our family or someone at our workplace or one of our friends. Doubt is rampant and We struggle with it and it takes all kinds of forms. Sometimes it's as simple as doubting God's willingness to work in our own lives and answer our own prayers and listen to us and care for us and meet our needs. And as I said, it is so pervasive among the children of God that we really must be on constant guard against it, right? I would be willing to say that most of us, if we would be honest and if we cared about our faith and our walk with God, would say we have certainly encountered some form of doubt about the things of Christ and Christianity in the last month, last six months, last year. We just simply have questions. Even the slightest of questions. We must constantly be on guard against doubt we must always wrestle against it and we must be equipped from God's word to wrestle against it and guard against it it is common and pervasive to stress that point I just kind of want to walk through a glimpse a very small glimpse of common bible characters who experience doubt the bible is full of them But this problem of doubting God and questioning God goes as far back as who? Adam and Eve, right? And they're in the garden. They didn't question God's existence. And they didn't question what God had said. But the enemy had tempted them to doubt just for a moment whether God was being truthful. Whether God was being honest. Whether God really had the authority There was no question what he had said. What was called into question, what was doubted, was whether or not he had the authority to say what he said. We can move on to the father of the faith as he's known, Abraham and Sarah. The man whom we look at in Genesis and we say, man, he's he's got a lot of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says he has a lot of faith and yet on three separate occasions he exercises doubt in God's providential purposes. God has made a covenant with him, a promise with him that you are going to give birth to a son from Sarah and he's going to be many nations one day. From him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abraham exercises doubt when he sleeps with Hagar instead of waiting upon God. Although God had promised that 
he would bear a son and generations would come from him. He and Sarah lied on two separate occasions to spare their own life. They didn't trust that God would see the promise through. They exercised moments of doubt. We can talk about Moses who doubted that God would, would and could use him. We can talk about King David all throughout the Psalms. Glimpses of doubt in God's love and protection and, and provision. We can talk about Zechariah at the beginning of Luke, if you remember, when John the Baptist is being prophesied about his birth, foretold, and Zechariah doubted, and God made him mute. We can talk about the disciples who experienced and showed doubt when they fled, when Christ was arrested. And this morning, in our passage today, we can look at John the Baptist who's probably the most popular, most famous example of doubt in the New Testament, and at the same time, maybe one of the most perplexing examples of doubt in the New Testament. That's what we find in Luke chapter 7, verse 18 this morning. John's perplexing account of doubt. And yet, in this passage, I believe it can be there, there are truths that we can find that will be helpful and meaningful for us all. As we see John wrestle with doubt, and as we see the Lord engage John in his doubt, we can find hope and encouragement, and we can be equipped with tools to help us overcome doubt. It's, it's a highly practical passage that has, really, if we take it to heart, church, it has untold benefits for our lives now and, and in the future as we wage this war against doubt that will inevitably come upon us if we care about the things of God. And we will find just two things in this passage this morning. John's question of doubt and Jesus' answer to doubt. John's question of doubt and Jesus' answer to doubt. Look with me in Luke chapter 7, verse 18. There's nothing like hearing your own child cry. <laughs> it's not distracting for me at all. It's, it's, it's kind of a blessing. <clears throat> Luke chapter 7, verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to Jesus. And these things that they've reported are what's been found already in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Jesus, you remember prevents the centurion servant from dying, heals him just by speaking his word. Verses 11 through 17, Jesus has raised a young man from the grave as, as his funeral procession is proceeding to the graveyard. So those are the things that John's disciples are reporting to John. Verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Here's the perplexing matter going on here in John's life. We're going to examine John's life a little bit in a second, but, but he's just heard these outstanding supernatural miracles. The prevention of death and the resurrection of the dead. And it's those reports that cause him to ask this question. Are, are you the one who's to come? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for another? Verse 20, when the men, John's disciples, had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. And He answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. Let's first look, verses 18, 19, and 20, at John's questions here, John's questions of doubt. And to do that, to understand the significance and perplexity of what's going on here, let's examine the person of John. If you skip down into verses 24 through 28 of this passage, Jesus asks the crowd after John's disciples have left, He says, who, do you, who did you go out to listen to? Did you go out to be entertained by some guy? He says, no, you went out and you heard a prophet. Verse 27, he says it's not just any prophet, it's the one that's, uh, 
that's prophesied about. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. It's a, it's a special kind of prophet. And it's not just a prophet. Verse 28, Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And so we have this picture of John painted here in Luke chapter 7. He's the greatest man to be born of woman, excluding Christ Himself. And he's a prophet of God. In fact, we know more about John's life from the Gospels, don't we? That prophecy in Luke chapter 7, verse 27, tells us he's the forerunner of Christ. He has been given the special privileged task from God to prepare the people for the coming of Jesus. Nobody has ever had a ministry like that. We stand on this side of the cross and we take up the same task as John. We try to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. But what an honor to prepare people for the first coming of the Messiah. That's who John is. That's what he gets to do. As I said, he holds the office of prophet. In fact, he holds the office of the last prophet of the Old Covenant. He is the man who gets to baptize Jesus. He is the man who gets to identify Jesus. John chapter 1, perhaps one of the most beautiful statements made about Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's made by John the Baptist. He has this awesome privilege of spending his adult life talking about Jesus so that people will be ready when He comes and enters into His public ministry and yet what we find so perplexing about this that no matter your greatness and no matter the task that God has given you and no matter how much influence you may have no matter how important your ministry or purpose in life may be doubt is pervasive and none of those things prevent someone from doubting here's the greatest man who's ever lived who possesses probably one of the greatest ministries outside of Christ. And he's plagued right now with doubt. So the, the lesson there is, if you are struggling with doubt, or if you know someone who's struggling with doubt, the answer is not greatness. And the answer is not doing more. And the answer is not being more important. It's amazing to me and perplexing to me how doubt can creep in to the heart and to the mind of someone like John the Baptist. And yet it does. And I dare think that if John can doubt Christ Himself, are not all believers susceptible to the same thing? Here's the man who was tasked with and did identify Jesus to the world. And now he writes and says, are you really him? Strange. But true. Your level of greatness. Your task in the church. Your role as a father or a mother. Your influence over other people will not protect you from moments of doubt. There's a little freedom in that, isn't there? You don't have to pretend anymore that you're okay. You may be a leader of something or someone. You don't have to put on a phony persona that you don't struggle with doubt. The truth is, if John the Baptist does, I'm pretty sure we all do. Here's a personal friend and relative of the Lord questioning Jesus Himself. And let me say it again, there's nothing that the enemy would want more than to ruin your walk with God by robbing your joy in God by causing you to doubt God. So it's coming. Because that's His plan. Now let's pause and step back and maybe try to examine and ask ourselves, why did John doubt? What brought this on? And I think there are two things, or really 
other things, but I think there are two in this passage that I want to bring out that apply to us directly. These two things cause John to doubt and they cause us to doubt. The first one is our circumstances can cause us to doubt if we take our eyes off of God. If we try to look and endure our circumstances in our own strength without the help of God, seeds of doubt can spring up quickly and easily. Verse 18, John's in prison. That's why they're reporting these things to him. That's why he can't go investigate himself. That's why he has to send two of his disciples to Jesus. He is locked up. And we know that story. He's locked up because he spoke out against Herod, who's the king, the tetrarch over the region, who had just married his brother's wife, Herodias. And John the Baptist says that is evil, that's wicked, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. That's not a real marriage. God didn't honor that. And for that reason, he's imprisoned. And he is in prison in Herod's summer palace, in the dungeon of that palace, which is in a very desolate location overlooking the Dead Sea. And I've read that there are still remnants of that dungeon today that you can go and visit. And you can find there iron hooks embedded in the stone that all the prisoners would have been shackled to. That's where we find John. His, his situation right now, his future looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? He's allowed, obviously, to have some contact with his friends, whether that was authorized or not. Maybe they're peeking in one of the holes in the walls or talking to him that way. But nonetheless, he has some contact with friends, but he really has no hope of freedom. Because you don't just make the king mad and get off easy, do you? No, he, he probably realizes his life, his ministry... It's coming to an end. His disciples are, are probably going to be without their leader. They're going to be scattered. His situation is bleak. It is hopeless. And that always lends itself as fuel for doubt, doesn't it? When you look at your circumstances and when you look at your situations and you look at where you are and you don't look at it through the lens of God's sovereignty, doubt can quickly Take root. Put yourself in John's shoes. After all, I've been faithful. I was the forerunner to the Christ. I've stood upon my convictions. I didn't waver. I spoke out for the things of God and spoke out against wickedness. And my faithfulness is now rewarded with prison. Anyone would experience doubt in such situations and circumstances if their eyes are taken off the Lord but for a moment. I mean, isn't, isn't this stuff true for us? You can think through your life and all the times we fail to look to the Lord for help and our eyes are taken off even just for a moment, taken off of the Lord and we look instead at our situations and we are like Peter and we're overcome by the waves and take our eyes off of Christ and we sink so quickly. And doubt comes up in our minds and doubt comes up in our hearts. Maybe God doesn't have a plan for me. Maybe, maybe I've wasted my life. Maybe I, I really shouldn't have stood up for the things of God. Maybe God didn't care that much if Herod married his brother's wife. Maybe this, maybe that. And questions start flooding the soul. That's where John the Baptist is at. The second thing that caused him to doubt is John, like everybody else in the time frame, had a different idea of who the Messiah would be and what he would do. It's that, I just want to read that beautiful proclamation that John made when he identified Jesus. It's, he's right when he says this about the Lord. He says in John chapter 1, verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, he exclaimed, he, he pronounced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's right in that statement. He, he knew who Jesus was. And yet John had spent a lot more time proclaiming a different message. That identification of Christ was not the prominent point of what he had preached for years. His primary message was repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get ready because the Messiah is coming and He's going to judge the wicked. And He's going to overthrow the ungodly. 
And all those who are not ready, who do not repent, who do not trust in God, will have to answer to the Messiah. He's coming, and He's going to judge you. Be ready. He even says to the Pharisees, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's John's message. That's what he'd been preaching. And that's what he expected of the Messiah. He's coming, and He's bringing with Him judgment and condemnation for the wicked. In fact, that's taught throughout the Old Testament. And so he warns his hearers, repent, repent. There is coming the final judge over the world. And that statement is true. He is the final judge of the world. He will execute judgment and condemnation for the wicked. But John's sitting in this prison cell and he's getting reports about Jesus and he's not hearing what he expects to hear in the life of the Messiah. Instead of encountering and receiving reports about judgment and condemnation coming from the Messiah, he's hearing reports of mercy and forgiveness and healing and provision. I, th- I thought the Messiah was going to overthrow the wicked, and here he is forgiving the wicked. Put yourself in John's shoes. I've been preaching for years. That the ungodly, their time is running out. And here I sit and Rome is still in power. This oppressive nation that pillages and murders people and suppresses countries. They're still in charge. The Messiah is here and Herod is still living in luxury. He's still the leader. He still has influence. He's He's even imprisoned a servant of God. The Messiah has come, and yet the self-righteous religious leaders are still in power. They're still leading the people astray. And I'm keeping up with Jesus through my disciples, and I'm not hearing of, of Him overthrowing the wicked. I'm hearing of Him forgiving. They, they expected the Messiah to come in and overthrow all this ungodliness. And instead, there's a Messiah who's come on the scene and He's going to the cross. And He's going to overthrow Rome and Herod and the self-righteous Pharisees at the cross. It's not what I thought. There is coming that day of the Lord, right? John was correct. The Messiah will come back, execute judgment and condemnation, but not at His first coming. The message is still true. Repent and get ready, for you do not know the day of the Lord that will come. It will come like a thief in the night. And you must be ready. You must be prepared. But Jesus Himself said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. My first coming is a coming of mercy and forgiveness and patience and salvation. I want to extend grace before I extend judgment. So John is sitting in prison and he's having questions because he expected Jesus to be someone who he is not. At least at his first coming. And he expected Jesus to do something that Jesus is not going to do in John's timing. He's going to do it in his own timing. And that's true of us, isn't it? The most fertile soil for doubt is when you have a wrong understanding of who Jesus is. The most fertile soil for doubt is when you have a wrong understanding of what Jesus is doing and going to do. We fashion Jesus in our own image sometimes, don't we? We place expectations upon Him that are not real and do not need to be there. We think that He should be one way when He is in fact not that way. And He should do some things when in fact He should not do some things and will not do some things. That's why it's so important that we know the Scriptures and the God of the Bible and the Christ of the New Testament and Old Testament. This is who Jesus is, not as we fashion Him in our minds. John had perfect theology in proclaiming the judgment of the Messiah and and the identity of Jesus He was spot on. His timing was off. 
And these spark questions in him. Questions of doubt. These two things that we see in John's life, circumstances and, and wrong expectations, are the primary means of the devil to get believers to doubt God. Same was true with Adam and Eve. Same is true today. If the devil can twist and spin in your mind, spin your mind to look away from God and at your circumstances, doubt will probably take root. Is God really good enough? Strong enough? Does He care? Is He there? Is He listening? If the enemy can get you to think differently about Jesus, even for a slight moment and even in a slight way, then when you realize Jesus is not who you thought He was, doubt can creep in. It is sure to spring up when we stop trusting God in our circumstances and when we fashion Jesus to be someone else than who He really is. That's John's situation. John had an awesome ministry. Great privilege. Christ Himself regarded Him as the greatest man to live. But He is just that, a man. He was not perfect. And He's not above temptation. Not above sin. And for a moment, He questions Christ. Now, the glorious truth of this passage is not that John questioned and we can identify with John. We're not alone in our doubts. That's not the glorious truth of the passage. The glorious truth of this text is that Christ has an answer to our doubts and that Jesus is willing and eager to answer our doubts. That's what He does with John. He wants to help us believe. And that's the heart of Christ. That's the heart of God, isn't it? If you question that, look at the cross. He went to great lengths so that you could believe and have faith. Someone was speaking with me a few weeks ago and we were kind of joking around and I said, the Lord has invested too much in me to let me go. And He has at the cross. Those who, whom are His children can come to Him with doubts and we see the high price that He paid on the cross. Why would we think He's going to let us linger in our doubts and not answer us and help us and give us faith and strengthen our belief? He most certainly will. The passage that we read this morning, I want to read it again. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He fully knows that we are weak, that we struggle, that we need our faith to be strengthened and encouraged, and we need aid in the Christian life and the Christian walk until we get to heaven. He knows we're weak. He can sympathize with our weaknesses. And we do not have a high priest who is unable to do so. But instead, we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You know what that means? Even Christ Himself was tempted to doubt God, wasn't He? And He said, bow yourself down before Me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You're hungry? Abandon God and turn that stone into bread and eat. Christ has been tempted to doubt and yet He overcame that temptation. So the author of Hebrews writes this in verse 16, Let us then... Because we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses, because Christ has been tempted to doubt and yet overcame temptation, let us then with confidence and boldness and certainty, surety, let us then draw near to the throne of what? Legalism? The throne of law? The throne of authority and judgment? The throne of grace. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace. Why? To find help in our what? Time of need. Every one of us have times of need. Every one of us wrestle with doubt. And we have a Savior who knows such things 
and says, come to my throne of grace and I will help you in such times of need, especially spiritual needs, especially matters of your faith in me. I want you to believe. And church, that's exactly what John did by sending his disciples. He had a question about Christ. And you know what? He didn't linger. He went directly to Christ. He drew near. And he sought help. And he found it. There is no one better. No one better able. No one better equipped to address our issues of doubt. Than Jesus himself. If you have a doubt of God's truthfulness. God's goodness. God's mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. Whatever. Go to God. He'll give you an answer. Draw near in your time of need. That's the beauty of the passage. We find that Jesus is eager to definitively answer John's questions. He wants to provide proof for John. I want you to know without a doubt, John. So he does two things. He answers him in two ways. He answers him in in his actions. And he answers him in his words. First in his actions. Actions give credence to your words, don't they? Talk is cheap. We've heard that before. Your actions lend credibility to your words. And so, instead of giving the disciples a message, first off, verse 21, Jesus decides to act. In that hour, He healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, He bestowed sight. That's the purpose of His miracles. His divine works are to confirm His divine message of His divine nature. That's the very purpose of them. John chapter 10. Just stick with me for a moment longer this morning. John chapter 10. Because I think this this passage can help you in your battle against doubt. John chapter 10 verse 24 and 25. The Jews gathered around Jesus and said to Him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Verses 37 and 38, same passage, He says it again, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching and he uses the same principle to prove the divinity of Christ. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. These divine miracles are the divine confirmation for the divine message of the divine nature of Christ. And that's what He does for John. Do you have a question about me, John? Look at what I do. Look at the work of my hands. Look at the motivation behind my acts. His actions give credence to His Words. So in that hour, verse 21, the Lord healed the sick, relieved plagues from people, exercised authority over demons. He bestowed sight to the blind church. These are no mere magician's tricks or illusions. It's divinity in the flesh, isn't it? Even Nicodemus, John chapter 3, verse 2, an unbeliever at this time, mind you, understands this. He says, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus knows John needs help right now. What better help than to perform such wonders? And so he does. Nothing better to prove himself than his divine works. No other explanation for what he does than His divine works. And then He gives John an answer via His words. Verse 22 and verse 23. And essentially, He just tells the disciples of John, go back to John and tell him what you've seen and what you've heard Me say and do. And that is, the blind receive their sight 
The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are even raised. Poor have good news preached to them. Not only do the works of Christ confirm Him, the words of Christ do as well because what He says there, He's saying, I'm the one prophecy is talking about. Isaiah chapter 29, verses eight, verse 18. In that day, talking about the Messiah, the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6, perhaps a little bit more definitive. Then, when the Messiah comes, the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Jesus says to John, that, that time's here in, in me. It's me. I'm the one to come. My works prove it. God's Word proves it. So John's doubt is now met with an answer from Jesus. It's now met with the testimony of Christ and the testimony of God's Word from Isaiah. And let me tell you, there is no better medicine for your doubt than God's Word and the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the Holy Spirit in your heart. When you doubt the things of God, run back to God. You will find there the greatest answers. In fact, you'll find there the only answers. So Jesus gives him this testimony and it eases John's doubts and John's questions. But there is one unique statement I want to point out real quick. Verse 23 that Jesus makes here. And it almost seems to be a tag on the end here, but yet it's very important that we look at it. He says to John, by the way, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, John's not offended. He's just questioning. He's not mad at you. He just is having a moment of doubt here. So what's Jesus saying by that? He's issuing a warning here. I am eager and ready to help you believe. But I will not conform myself to your will. I want you to believe in me. I want you to have faith in me. But I'm not going to change and be someone you think I should be. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to teach what I teach and say what I say. And blessed is the one who has faith in me and is not offended by who I am and what I say and what I do. I'm willing. I'm eager. I want you to believe that I won't change my person. I won't change my word. I won't change my heart. I am who I am. And I am the greatest need that you have. And I'm the greatest answer to your doubt. Jesus didn't do anything out of, the, out of His ordinary practice to help John believe. He simply pointed out what he'd already been doing. He was already performing miracles. Already healing the sick. Casting out demons. Giving sight to the blind. I'm not changing myself so John can believe. I'm making it clear of who I am so John can believe. Now I find it so beautiful here. That you have someone a, a, in John, a, a leader of people, baptizing people, preaching God's will and message and word. And yet, although he's a leader and has responsibility and has even authority and has a message, he's struggling right now in this prison cell. It's, it's evident. And you know what? Jesus isn't frustrated with him. And Jesus hasn't grown impatient with him. He's not disappointed in Him like we would expect. I think we place those burdens on each other sometimes, don't we? Come on. You're a leader. You've been walking with the Lord for 40 years. Why are you struggling with doubt? That doesn't come from the Lord. Instead, Jesus responds to John with tenderness, honesty, clarity, helpfulness, and encouragement, doesn't He? The same should be true of us as we walk together. Chances are there are some here this morning who are doubting in some fashion something of God because of their life's circumstances. You should have brothers and sisters here in Christ who are willing to help you believe and have faith. Not condemn you. That's not what our Lord did to John. 
That's not what he does to us today. I think it's interesting as well that we find in other occasions in the New Testament and the Gospels that Jesus actually condemns such behaviors of seeking signs from the Jews. Multiple times they ask him, even in John 10, but multiple times they ask him, would you show us the sign? And he says, no, you're a gener- generation that only wants a sign. And yet here he comes to one who's already expressed faith in him and yet is struggling with that faith and we find him more than willing to prove himself. I think there is a good lesson for us to learn there. The Lord is not going to be tested. And he doesn't perform these miracles or tricks on demand, does he? Before his children who have already expressed faith in him and yet are struggling with that faith, we find him eager and more than desirous to help. So we don't come to the Lord testing him and we don't come to the Lord saying, I need a sign for this, I need a sign for that, I'm doubting this or doubting that. We come to the Lord and we say, I'm struggling with doubt and I need your help. And he will see fit to answer as he pleases. For John, it was confirmation through his signs. For us, it may be different. But nonetheless, we find that Christ will help His children. In closing, I was thinking this week, what does this passage mean for us? It's obvious that we struggle with doubt like John does. What can we take away with it? Again, like I said in the beginning, we doubt sometimes that God loves us or forgives us or has grace for us. Sometimes we're even doubt in minor ways thinking that God maybe begrudgingly forgives us or begrudgingly loves us because He's committed to doubting his, the full extent of His love. Sometimes we doubt that God's Word is true, that He hears our prayers, cares about our needs, cares about the details, or that He'll save someone or care about others in our family. I think the lesson we take away here that I want you to know the most is that when we doubt like this, Be like John and run to Jesus. We too have access to the Lord as simple as John sending his disciples down the road. In fact, I would say we have easier access to the Lord through the Holy Spirit and prayer. Seek Him. Wrestle with your doubt with Christ. Understand Jesus is patient with us and would treat us like John and Help us to grow in the faith. That's who our Lord is. That's His heart. And then also realize you too, like John, have the testimony of Christ. When you wrestle with doubt, run to the Psalms. Run to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of John. You too have the words of Jesus. The miracles recorded. Just like John did. The report John received, we get to receive as well. Right here in Divine Scripture. The truth that we come to this morning is the same Savior who wanted John to believe wants us to believe today. And the same Savior who wanted to help John grow in the faith will help us grow in the faith. We do not have a distant, unconnected, unconcerned God. We have a highly personal, totally invested, completely loving God who wants to be involved in your life. He doesn't just want a part of you. He wants all of you. And He wants to meet every need of yours, every need of your heart, of your soul. He certainly wants to chase away your doubt. And there is no one better to do that. But we know it's not just our doubt that He wants to chase away. It's our sin. He doesn't just answer the problem of doubt in our life. He answers the greatest problem in our life, right? Sin and lostness, which is the very cause of all doubt. And we see that proven by Christ dying on the cross for us to pardon us of our sin, forgive us of our unrighteousness, liberate us from the captivity of those things that cause doubt in our life. If you experience doubt, the first step is Confession, isn't it? Remembrance of the Gospel that our Lord 
wants us to be saved. And once we are saved, once the salvation and blood of Christ is applied to us, He will never lose, never leave that soul, that child. He paid too high a price. We have a Savior who cares. A Savior who will meet your need. Primarily your need for salvation. But if you're a child of God, even your need as you walk this Christian life of ups and downs. As you, like John, may encounter doubt, we have the answer in Christ. So I pray, implore you, run to Jesus. He alone will meet our needs. Lord, Your goodness is unmatched and Your kindness and compassion is unmatched and Your patience with weak people is unmatched. God, we're all weak. Even the greatest man born of women, according to Your Word, was weak compared to You and Your standard and perfection. And God, there is some comfort in some way knowing that if someone like John would doubt, then it must be somewhat normal to doubt. We're not isolated. I know, God, the enemy wants to tempt us to think that we're the only ones experiencing doubt. That's just not true. But the greatest picture and beauty that comes from the passage is that You are so eager to help us, God. So eager to help us believe and give us the strength that we need to have faith. For those of us who are struggling with that this morning, God, help us to do that. We cannot walk this life alone. We are the dependent child needing Your hand to lead us, guide us. So for the sake of Your name, lead us and guide us and help us. Thank You for such love and such proof of who You are, that we have the inerrant, holy Word of God to speak to our minds and our hearts, our souls, to confirm You indeed are the Savior, the Christ. Help us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.